What's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of Men Thrive. You all know what it is. We are having a conversation with brothers who in some way, shape, or form in their life have decided they don't want to just survive, but they want to thrive. Uh, This isn't about their resume. This isn't about what project they got coming out. This isn't about who you think they are. This is simply, I am so tired of the fact that we just don't hear black men having conversations. And so uh, I have the honor and privilege uh, every week of having conversations with brothers who I know, some who I don't know, some I call friends, some who I admire, some who I'm meeting for the first time. And this week, this this one's a special one um, because it's interesting when you when you are a fan of somebody before you become their friend uh, and then you meet who they really are and and the relationship transitions in a way that you never would have imagined um, because folks who are in the media and folks who have jobs that put them in the public eye uh, it's impossible for you to understand the depth and complexity of who they are. Uh, until you sit face to face and share experiences and uh, meet folks, mamas and kids and significant others and and just be on the road. And um, I've I've had the blessed uh, opportunity to do that with this brother. Uh, Many of you know him as uh, one of the as the main producer for Little Brother. Um, He is North Carolina. Uh, so there's no confusion. It doesn't matter where you've seen him, where he's done work, where he's been. He is North Carolina, and he's worked with everybody um, from yesterday uh, to some of the Giants. And and I won't go through his entire resume as much as I will say um, he is a brother who is in full supply of integrity. He's a servant to our community, uh, both in front of and behind the cameras. He is an institution builder and supporter. Uh, He is a leader that understands impact uh, over uh, image. And in many cases, one of the brothers who I know and I see talking behind the scenes with other men, um, feeding and supporting and lifting up and strategizing uh, in a way that is seldom seen in public. Uh, One, because some of us know you can't do that in public all the time, but two, um, because that's where the real magic happens. And so it is an honor and a privilege to introduce, uh, some of y'all may know him as Patrick uh, Dothit, but most of you know him as Ninth Wonder. What's up, brother? How you doing, man? What's going on? Man, I'm I great. I don't think I deserve that much intro. <laughs> man, please. I appreciate it. <laughs> please, you absolutely do. Um, you know as well as I do, man, one of, one of the things when you've been in the spaces as long as we have that you recognize is consistency. And uh, it's a lot of cats that come and go, um, sometimes because they want to, sometimes because they, even if they don't. But I'm, uh, I, I am, I, I don't even know what the word is, man. It's, it's not, it's not fascinated. I'm, I'm encouraged by consistency. Um, the fact that I see brothers just show up, and and consistency doesn't mean you don't evolve. Right. right. It, does, it, it doesn't mean that you're the same cat. In right. fact, it's problematic, I think, if, if you're the same cat now that you were 10 years ago. But if your consistency is the same, that you keep showing up, that you keep serving, that you keep trying to be your best, that you keep um, creating, um, that to me is the sign of 
not only integrity but the 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 fact that you know man you were you were created for this 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 isn't about a, a career or an industry as much as it is just trying to walk in your gift and and that's just what i've always seen uh in our interactions and so it's not uh it's not trying to blow you up it's just trying to be honest about who you are i appreciate it um i guess i always like to say um don't get fundamentals and old school confused Hmm. Uh, I think there's a part of us, no matter what generation that we're talking about, whether it be early 1900s black men or now, um, and black women as well, human beings. I think it's um, the craft or whatever craft that you're a part of, it is the best idea to master it. And um, mm-hmm. And, and that's basically what it is for me. You know, of course, I've evolved in different ways. I started as a producer, but now I am a professor, um, a DJ, and a basketball enthusiast <laughs> slash life skills mentor. Um, I'm heavily involved in basketball, especially youth basketball, especially girls basketball. So, but even throughout all of that, the fundamentals that I've taken from being a producer and learning the craft and studying the craft every day, I apply it everywhere else. And if you do it for a long time, then it looks like, I guess it looks like consistency. This is, this is producing. This is 19 year 19 for me. Mm. Um, to say that out loud, is crazy, but I know some producers that has been here and been gone. Yeah. Um, the producer, I, the producers I studied, whether it been Jimmy Jam or Terry Lewis or Dr. Dre or DJ Premier or Missy Elliott or Patrice Russian or any any producer that I've studied, their longevity is off the charts. Um, they evolve with the times, but they you know it's still them over time and. And for me, I, I just try to study that mantra and just keep it going. And that spreads across from production to basketball, um, the many relationships I've formed with a lot of coaches in, in college basketball. Um, you know, one being uh, Coach Mike Krzyzewski at Duke mm-hmm. and Coach Lavelle Mobile at North Carolina Central, which I've known him for 25 years. We went to undergrad at Central together. It's the same idea. It's It's... It's because it's, it's learning the craft and understanding the craft and making sure that you stay always a student. And if you remain always a student, then you'll continue to be consistent. If you think you've mastered it, then you, you're not going to be consistent at all. Well, so. well let, let me know, because I, I, that speaks to me in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I, um, I was an athlete young and um, all American in track and field and went to college on track scholarship. And it was it was the first thing I fully committed to by choice uh, to master. And, and I'm curious, what, what was the first thing that you were a student of by choice? By choice? Yeah. The first thing I was a student of by choice, to be honest, <laughs> I would say um, G.I. Joe. Like I would, <laughs> you know what I mean? G.I. Joe and Star Wars and Transformers. Those are the three things I became. Because in order to, to like those three cartoons, those are very intricate mm-hmm. 
cartoons. It kind of prepared us for the likes of Wu-Tang Clan, if you think about it, because you know Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang, every member had four names, right? And or three or four names. And, you know, with G.I. Joe and Transformers and, and Star Wars, those are not just cartoons, those are ideas, right? And so I became just enthralled by knowing, you know, making sure I'm going to school and knowing all the G.I. Joe that I can know. This is elementary school, you know what I mean? Like, or any Transformers or anything dealing with um, Star Wars, I'm up on it. And that just so happened to happen at the same time of I, the second thing I started to choose was hip hop. Mm. I chose that over sports first. I chose that before sports. And, and, you know, it was something I chose that because it was my, it was my mom's music. I mean, it it wasn't my mom's music and it wasn't my dad's Mm. and it wasn't even my brother's music. It was mine. You know, my mom and dad's music was Motown then turned into gospel when, you know, they were Motown in the 60s and then in the 70s when they got sanctified with the Holy Ghost, it was gospel mm. after that. Then my older brother, he was a, you know, he was Parliament Funkadelic and mm. all of that stuff, right? Cameo, SOS Band, Midnight Star, Atlantic Star. That's it. That was his thing. My thing was Planet Rock, Africa Band Body and Soul Sonic Force. And so, and Run DMC, which led me to LL and Beastie Boys and Public Enemy. Mm-hmm. So I I chose that because it hip hop belonged to me. It spoke a language to me. So I started to choose that and choose it heavily. At the same time, I chose to be in the band. So now I'm doing all of this as one time, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. What was the so first it, instrument you picked up? Uh, clarinet. Um, our band teacher had this weird thing where he would say, you know, I'm going to hear all these mouthpieces and whatever it was a mouthpiece to a flute, a sax, a clarinet, a trumpet, and whatever you got the best sound out of, that was your instrument. Wow. And it just so happens I can do all of them, but I chose the clarinet. And what, that was sixth grade. But then by the time I got to the eighth grade, I was like, if somebody's missing that day, I'm the fill-in person. If the trombone <laughs> player's missing, then I'm the fill-in. If the drummer's missing, I'm the fill-in. So then it became that. So music in general just became my best friend, pretty much. But go back a little bit because you it's interesting to me when you talk about mastering G.I. Joe um <laughs> and Transformers. No, because there there's such this there's such this um complexity of understanding good versus evil and morality Um, even before you start dealing with the complexity of building an army in chess right but 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 how did how did that play for you like how how did the morality of that play for you like were you the guy that was always rooting for gi joe or were you rooting for cobra I mean, were you rooting for the Autobots or were you rooting for the Decepticons? Or was it more was it more um, complex for you? And that's what you loved about it, because because that's to me, that says a lot about who you were coming up, man. Yeah, it did. It did. Um, You know, at first, when you're young, you know, it's kind of like that's the same question. Were you rooting for the Rock and Roll Express or were you rooting for Ric Flair? And you knew (laughs) Ric Flair was the bad guy. You know what I mean? The key to Koloff was the bad guy before he turned good. You know, you had, you rooted for the good guys, but I still had an affinity for the four horsemen. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, 
I, I loved Optimus Prime, but it was something about Megatron I can learn something from. I loved, of course, I loved Snake Eyes is my favorite, one of my favorite cartoon characters, mm-hmm. period. I loved him, but Storm Shadow had something that I could pull <laughs> something from. Destro had something. Serpento had something. Um, um, Star Wars is the same thing. Star Wars is one of the biggest things because, of course, you're young, you think in Luke Skywalker and all this and that. Mm-hmm. But by the time you get older, you understood how Darth Vader turned right. the way he turned, right? Right. And, you know, you learn to find out that, hey, like, Darth Vader just had daddy issues. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it turns into that. And, and well, Helen, you, if we're honest, more of us are Anakin than we are Luke. See, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> we are way more Anakin than we are Luke. Cause it's <laughs> like, you know, something happens to us along the way. Mm-hmm. We may be special in our gift, but something happens along the way to us, and we end up turning, and it, and it you know we kind of get trapped in this turn. Well, and, you know what's crazy too. I mean, you know this because you you are a scholar, but but Man Marable, before he died, was working off of a leadership premise where he said the black community doesn't look the way it's supposed to because eighty five percent of the men supposed to be leading are locked up. Right. And it was this Malcolm X leadership premise, right, that that most of these brothers, especially post-civil rights kids, got were connected more to disconnected infrastructure of gangs than they ever were formal infrastructure of schools or civil rights. And as a result, the pathway to excelling in that was jail. Mm-hmm. Um and and so it's it's interesting because you you think about this this reality that's when you're brilliant and I don't mean that in a narcissistic way when you're gifted somebody always wants to manipulate that for their good Absolutely. versus yours. Absolutely. And and so as you were coming up man how did you what was the village that was around you oh that God. that uh, that not allowed you cuz it ain't really about that right that that protected you from yourself in your most vulnerable times? You know what? Um, and I just had this conversation with my mother um, um, a while back. Well, not a while back, but recently. Um, and one of my friends, you know, one of my friends told me one time, say, man, you, you take care of a lot of people. <laughs> and I said, you know, I was trained to do that because a lot of people took care of me. You know what I mean? Like, you know, my mother's 78 and my dad's 79 years old. A majority of their friends who they will call friends are passed on, mm-hmm. right? Um, friends of my mom's and dad's where they went to church together. Some people that my mom taught with, my mom's a teacher. Some people that my dad worked with at RJ Reynolds Tobacco Company. Um, if my mom ever took me somewhere you know, back in the day, your mom might take your buddy friend house and drop you off. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just to hang out with, you know, because now you done made friends with their children, and that's how it goes, right? Mm-hmm. So, but no matter where my mom took me, whether it been an aunt of mine, uncle, and I hear a lot of horror stories about children being taken advantage of and mistreated over people's houses and all this type of thing, things, that never happened to me. You know what I mean? That never... Every any adult I was around, and, and you gotta think, this is 1984, 1985, when I'm nine or ten. 
my mom is 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 43 so their friends are 46 47 so i'm raised around old souls yeah. right that's that's who i'm brought up around all the time and those people took care of me like 100 I, I got a village of people that took care of me whether they've been church members whether it been um like i said which is my mom friends whether it been aunts or uncles whether it been my middle school's my middle school friends' parents, like we had, I had an incredible village of people that took care of me, and I never wanted for anything. I never needed anything. I could always get it, and at the same time, I was always disciplined by all of these people. If I got in trouble in school, whatever house we stopped at, I got to hear about it. You know what I mean? Like, and it, and it's the whole it's the whole thing that old people do when they look at you. They be like. Mm. I never expected that out of you. I'm surprised <laughs> at you. I can't believe you. And is it, it that's no, it's the crushing one. It's the crusher. It's the crusher. It's the crusher. And so that kind of rearing from a people that grew up in post civil, I mean post uh, World War II, um, living through the '50s and living in the civil rights movement and in the Black Power movement, coming from that. Sprinkled in with religion from the South, that's the kind of raising I got. Mm -hmm. And so that was my village, and, and I carried that on. That's why I'm so big on family. I'm so big on everybody eats. I'm so big on, you know, not leaving anybody out because I was never left out. Mm -hmm. I was never left out. So talk to me, man, a little bit about music. Um, because there, there's so many pathways into music as a business. Um, and I, I listen to, I, I got two sons who in some way, shape or form think they want to be in the music business, but there, there are times <laughs> when I'm, I'm, I'm clear, man. I'm like, nah, y'all dudes just want to be famous. Like there, there's a difference between wanting to master something and wanting to be famous. And and I know what the difference is. I know what it looks like. Because um, wanting to master something shows up different than wanting to be famous. And I, I know your bio. So I know, you know, I know the, 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 the early work you did with Nas and I know, you know, connecting with little brother, but, but I'm, I'm more interested in, at what point for you did the light click to say, no, I'm about to do this. Okay. Um, it was in stages, you know, public enemy was the first group that made me think about hip hop in a different light. The next stage was tribe was the first group that made me say, they remind me of me. Tribe hmm. came along at the same time. Tribe and Dwayne Wayne came along at the same time. <laughs> so those two entities remind me of me. I, I didn't, you know, Chuck D, I learned a lot, but I didn't feel like I could be him. And I definitely feel like I can be NWA or anybody. But I felt like Q-Tip, his persona, and Tribe fit me. So then I feel like I can, they spoke to me and I can be a part of the culture. It was Pete Rock that told me, without him telling me that, man, you can do this as a musician. Like you can take everything you know mm -hmm. about music and put it into a beat machine. And that's when I saw the video for They Reminisce Over You in 1992, the summer of 92. And when I saw that, I was like, man, like 
I don't want to do what the, the rapper guy does, but this guy over here is not saying much. What does he do? <laughs> and and I just thought that was so cool, you know, him and DJ Premier. It was it was the same kind of feeling. They were kind of heard but not seen. And I wanted to focus on that, but still, I was still in this whole thing of, you know, society. You got to go to college, you got to finish, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. And after a while, I started to really tap into what my dad thought and what his dad thought to be a self-made man. Hmm. My dad was a landscape. My dad was when he was younger, still living. He was a landscaper, a professional landscaper. My dad can walk through the woods and point out the trees and tell you what every kind of tree or bush Mm -hmm. is by species. His dad taught him how to do that, but his dad was all, his dad was also a well digger. He used to dig wells. So, but they made money doing that. It was a self-made idea. Mm -hmm. And for me, I didn't know I had that much dad, my dad and me to say, you know what? Like I want to create my own destiny. I want to, I want to do this. Now, how I'm going to get there. I don't know because (laughs) I think probably, and I'm only guessing, probably the reason why your sons want to do this, because everything about the music industry is now is so accessible to everybody, mm-hmm. whether it be billboard numbers, sound scan, mm-hmm. ARs, management, you know, it's so accessible. 1992, if you lived in North Carolina, like it ain't no accessibility to any of that. That's right. It's watched. MTV or, or Rap City or if somebody came to town, we went to the show. But being in the music industry coming from this state, not to say that it never happened because it has, but for us as hip hoppers, being in the music industry was kind of far-fetched. Yep. Being a teacher was not far-fetched. That's right. Being a lawyer was not far-fetched, but being a music producer was far-fetched. So although I had wanted to do it and I think I wanted to the biggest thing before I even thought about being in the music industry, as my brother Music Soul Child says, is two different things. There's a music community and there's a music industry. I wanted to learn how to make beats first and get good at that. And if I got a call from Pete Rock saying, boy, you hot, I feel like I've made it. (laughs) And that was the thing for me. And he did. He called me on Thanksgiving 2002. He called me and told me I bought I, I heard little brother and your beats is crazy. He stopped beatboxing one of my beats on the phone and I just lost it. Oh man. Because that was my goal. I wanted to do that. The, the publishing and signing and contracts and oh uh, man, I wouldn't I didn't even think that was possible. I just wanted to hear I just wanted one of my heroes to say I was good. <laughs> and that's what it was. I, I wanna come back to that. Um but but I wanna as as you think about just this commitment to growth and excellence, but also knowing like one of the things that that was so dope for me about Little Brother was the first time I heard it, I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. I mean, it was it was it was it was in a lot of ways how I felt the first time I heard Wu-Tang. I yeah. was like, I, I don't understand what's happening right now. I don't understand this sound that I'm hearing. I don't understand these sonics. I, what what the fuck is this right now? And and I love that because it challenges it challenges every sensibility of what you think is supposed to be while it simultaneously speaks to the depth of your soul. 
And and that's what I felt like when I heard Little Brother. And and I'm curious for you, were you specifically as a producer in a space where you were becoming yourself in that process? Or were you in a space where you were confident about who you were? And and the and, and where did the sound come from as a result of either the confidence or the exploration? Um well historically the sound came from the fact of you know, there's a lot of disparaging, a lot of talk about what the South sounds like. Mm-hmm. like um, if you're from down South, you're supposed to sound like this. If you're from down South, you're supposed to be slow and dumb. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, everybody's slow, everybody's nice, everybody's gullible. You know what I mean? But people don't understand that the, the foundation of what Pete Rock and DJ Premier got that four on the floor boom bap sound from was James Brown and James Brown from Augusta, Georgia. That's right. So I feel like from that, from a lineage standpoint, I was right on time. If you talk about James Brown and Augusta, Georgia, and talk about Willie Mitchell, who was producer for Al Green in Memphis, Tennessee, that that's, that's love and happiness. <laughs> so I'm right on time when it comes to the groove, so to speak. Um, and the South doesn't really turn the South as far as quote unquote sound that everybody knows it for until we don't get to that, that bounce thing until we get to like Master P. Yep. Outcast really didn't have that. They were more musical. You can tell that was Southern because of the instruments they chose and their draw. Mm-hmm. But with the bounce that everybody knows, everybody thinks of the South was Master P. Like, that's what it was. But prior to 1997, North Carolina was Black Moon country. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it was Black Moon, Wu Tang, Nas, Biggie. Mm-hmm. It was all of that. Pete Rock, CL Smooth, Gangstar. So that's all I knew. I didn't know how, I didn't, I didn't subscribe to anything else because that's all I knew. So if I can come up with a new derivative of that feeling, I was going to do that. And that's where it came out of me naturally in 2001 because I've been consuming that feeling mm-hmm. for the past, I don't know, since from 1986 to 1997, I've been consuming that feeling. So that's how that came. But that, it didn't necessarily mean that I knew who I was yet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was still trying to figure out you know, I had so much of a passion for the music and I was a fan for a long time because you got to think before most, most musicians get in the game, 19, 20 years old, well, most hip hop, 19, 20 years old, 21. It tripped me out when we and Buck, me and Buckshot and I from Black Moon started working together. And I said, man, I listened to you when I was in college and now we're just not working together in 2005. But when I look at our birthdays, man, I'm older than you. Like mm-hmm. it didn't even... It wouldn't even fathom. And I say that to say, because I started late. I started in age, I started age 26. I didn't score my first real check until age 28. So, you know, I'm thinking all of that time, I spent all that time being a fan. I was a fan for the longest time. Mm-hmm. I think it's helped me continue to be a fan. I wasn't raised in the industry. I know some people that's been raised in it. I wasn't. Oh, no, it, ma- it makes perfect. The first time I was on Rap City, I was 30. See what I mean? So, so how you move, even how you move different, you had time to figure out who you were 
or at least the beginnings to figure mm-hmm. out who you were as a man mm-hmm. before you got all this extra. Some people try to figure out who they are as people with all these riches or with all this attention coming at the same time. And that can be unhealthy yeah. sometimes. Well, especially when it's more attention than riches. Oh my God. It, <laughs> it, it, can be, it can be, it can be crazy, man. When you're trying to figure out who you are and then figure out what to do with all this notoriety status. But when you have a time to fail through your twenties, which a lot of us did, yep. you know, not paying rent, get kicked out of apartments, repossess cars, whatever it is, all of it, all of it. And then you finally hit this benchmark and start to take off and start to really see how life is in your thirties. It grounded me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So I was learning myself uh, in, in the process of already learning myself by the time we started the group anyway. So. When when you think back to that man, what what do you, what was the lesson, it took you the longest to learn? Um, probably the lesson it took me the longest to learn that one of them is was communication is everything, and um, um, everybody doesn't have the same heart as you, mm. and I think. We go in, we go into relationships, we go into friendships and get disappointed immediately when people don't have the share the same heart, the same morals, the same loyalty, the same whatever as you. And we kind of get mad at that person, but we don't understand that that person just wasn't raised that way. And I think that's, you know, that person wasn't, didn't get the love that I talked about with my village. You know what I mean? I came from an old school type of village. So my, my values are very old school, but then I end up meeting people that didn't get that, that same type of rearing. And it's like, I get upset when I'm like, why are you going to do something like kind of cancel people quick. And I had to understand that I had to be more forgiving to people. Something else people just don't know how to act. You know what I mean? No, so. I, I do. And, and and there's been something I've been struggling with around that. Um, when I think about most of the brothers that are in my inner circle, mm-hmm. almost all of them either know and had a relationship with their father mm-hmm. or had a intensely consistent surrogate father. Right. Um and, and I, I had struggled over the last maybe six or seven years with some relationships with brothers that weren't panning out the way I thought they should. And I realized, I started making some assumptions that, wait a minute, these dudes don't know how to be intimate with men. Right. And so it's not that something wrong with them or, or they, ain't, they ain't, you know, they, in many cases, they even want different. But every relationship they've had with a man has been toxic, has been, has, has created trauma in their life, has left them, has left, have abandoned them, has been to your point confrontational. And so they don't even know one of my boys um, didn't meet his father till he was 35. Right. And he told me probably when he was 32 years old, he was like, Jeff, man, you're the first man that ever told me he loved me. And when you said it to me, I literally had to step back and be like, it's something wrong with Jeff. Like we've been friends for a decade and he, this dude's questioning my sexuality and where I am as a result of me telling him I love him. And it just dawned on me that as men, there's so many of us that just have not 
had intimacy with men to the degree that we either demonize it or uh, we fight it because we think something is wrong with it. And it's it's uh, and, and that's what I found more than anything else is that like when I think about these dudes, I'm like, oh, he knew his daddy. He had a relationship with his daddy. He had no daddy, but his granddaddy was like solid. He had granddaddy or daddy, but uncle, big brother, right. dude around the corner, deacon, whatever, what was solid. And um, to your point, is is I'm I'm recognizing that in these relationships in a way, um, and I wanted it to be this, and it wasn't this. Not because old boy didn't want it; he wasn't capable of it because he ain't never seen it. You know, it's, it has a lot to do. And I know you've also noticed this too, the brothers who can't take instruction from another brother. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lot as well. That that has a lot to do with it. You know, who you, who you talking to Nick? Like it's it's always a defensive very fast instead of having a quote unquote council of men that you can go to when you're having in a situation. Yep. Um some brothers don't have that either. Um and also, which goes down another path. Some brothers don't know. We're all still learning how to express ourselves emotionally anyway. Without question. Because we've never had the space space to do it because it's kind of like, you know, I say all the time, when you're small, if you fall on a bike and you're two years old, you know, if you get up crying, everybody's like, oh, boy, quit crying. You all right. That's yeah. when it starts. Yep. That's the moment it starts. Man up. The man up. The man up starts when you when you fall, when you whatever, you get hurt, whatever. You're supposed to suck it up because you boy's not supposed to cry. Mm-hmm. And so we learn that. That's a learned behavior all the way through adolescence yep. until we get into, and we got all these emotions and feelings and don't necessarily know how to deal with them because we were told it was against the rules to deal with them or to or have with them. a feeling. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I say all the time, like there's a thin line for men. There's a thin line between expressing your emotions and being called bitch ass. Yep. I mean, there is oh, a, yes. a very thin line in that or whining. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Men are not supposed to whine. Men are not supposed to come home and tell their significant other, maybe I had a bad day today, man. Let me tell you what happened every day. Do that every day. And it's like, nigga, you cry too much. You know what I mean? And so that's kind of like mm-hmm. the, you know, trying to find the balance in between that is, but again, that comes from, you know, it, it all depends on how you will raise your upbringing, your council of brothers, um, everything. It, it, it depends on all. And if you don't have that, then and you don't have it until you 35, 30, man, you, shoot. Well, t- talk, t- t- how, did, how did you put together your council of brothers? Because that's not always easy. No, and and I know a, a number of not just young cats, but sometimes older cats who were taught that they're supposed to be a lone ranger. You know, th- these younger cats got a different I think a different kind of sensibility about crew um, yeah. than than some of us older cats do, and and so I see a lot of my millennial my millennial uh, nephews, they roll with they click. 
and and it's all love and they pushing each other and mm-hmm. they growing together. Uh, a lot of cats that are closer to our age still on some, I got to do this by myself. Uh, I ain't sharing this with nobody. That self-made is a real honorable thing versus a misperceived delusion. Um, so so for you, how, how have you put together your circle of men? I mean, it, it, you know, it started when I was probably around sixth grade. You know, when you're in elementary school, like you got friends all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean? no friends just maybe last two, three days. <laughs> but, but you know, but when I got into the sixth grade, it was, it was right around the perfect time because sixth, seventh, and eighth grade was like the beginnings of a different world and also school days. Mm. So that's when a few, a few things. First, just first by school systems and by by educational you start to be tracked that's right they're tracking you that's right you know to be in whoever class or to be in a gifted class or whatever it is so now i'm I'm looking that's what's in front of me you know black kids who know just as much as me right Mm -hmm. as far as academic wise and 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 from that i'm choosing it might have been an album it might have been a song it might have been you know whatever a birthday party whatever it was but now i look up 34 years later there's at least seven or eight brothers that i've been knowing since sixth grade that i talk to almost every day wow and and you know that's what and we we graduated from high school went to middle school together we graduated from high school together um to this day every christmas and thanksgiving we see each other every every year wow and you know, and you know, now we're at the age is a lot of us are bearing family members and parents, and you know what I mean. And we are there for each other all the time. It's just, a, it's just a, a, a really serious selection process on what you believed in as a kid, right? We grew up in the um, the all men are dogs era. You know what I mean? Is that era over, know? brother? Huh? Is that era over? No, well, <laughs> I don't. Let me, let me rephrase. We grew up in the when the phrase was popular. All gotcha. Men okay. You know what I mean? We call something else now, but I'm talking about from you know, all men are dogs. That area, this the era, the Stone Cold Gentleman era, as my homeboy like to say it. And 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 you know, I kind of chose my brothers who a who had a lot of the same kind of classes as me. Who had a lot of the same goals as me that we all wanted to go to school. Uh, one brother in particular, a friend of mine by the name of Randy Kilgore, we were in the ninth grade. His brother was in the twelfth grade. So, and we all went to the same high school. So, his brother had the same group of friends, mm-hmm. the same crew. It was a it was a bunch of his homies, it was a bunch of girls, and they had this kind of we're young, gifted, and black, and we're going to get the fuck out of here, crew. That's the mm-hmm. same kind of, and we looked at him, and, it, and in the same class, and, and in his same class, I had an older cousin that played basketball, and they were all in the same crew, and we modeled our whole mantra after, they were class of 90, I'm class of 93, and we modeled our whole mantra after them. We thought they were so cool, man. We thought they were just, they were all going to school, they were all well to do, they were all, they dress, we like the way they dress. They all play EPMD. Like we thought they was the coolest <laughs> shit. And for us, 
that was a goal for ours to make sure our crew, when we get scenes, we gonna be that. And so that's what we became. And we've been down ever since because we all had the same goals. We all like the same music. We all respected our parents. Um, all of our parents was kind of became kind of a, you know, a check and balance thing for us. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if I walk in the house, one of my homeboys' houses, um, and his mom might say, Patrick, you get your own port card? Like, yeah. Funny. Randy ain't get his. Where's his? And it's like, he like, damn, you know what I mean? Like we became this kind of like circle of 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 trust and 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 we're still that to this day. And right now, the vice president of my record label is Tia Wallington, and I've been knowing her since I was 14. And How do you maintain that though? Because because everybody doesn't grow at the same rate. Everybody doesn't evolve at the same rate. And to your point, sometimes, especially when we're not growing the way we want to, accountability, you know, we feel like instead of iron sharpening iron, I feel like you're cutting me instead of sharpening me. Like how how do you how do you maintain that? I mean, I mean, like practically, like what's one or two ways? Because when I talk to a lot of brothers, it's like, yo, my day ones is my day ones and I love them. But. They can't roll with me. <laughs> they can't roll with me here because. So I'm 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 curious about how like practically you've maintained that and and what the what the investment involves in that. The investment involves I mean luckily now we have the technology allows us to have chats and stuff like that to keep up with everybody and you know to whatever everybody is and everybody's parents and if one of our parents gets sick, like he gets thrown in the chat and we all praying that day. And I mean, we're still doing that. We've been doing that since we've been 14, 15 years old. I was also lucky enough to be a part of a program at Wake Forest University called Project Insure. And it was, it was a program from for academically gifted minorities going into the ninth grade. And a lot of my friends I met in that program. And it was something about that program that we had to stay uh, every summer for three weeks on campus. It was something about that program that made us stick together, man. And 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 that's what it is. We still live by the same mantras. M- music helps a lot. The fact that I'm a DJ and every time we get together, I can play every song <laughs> we listen to in high school. That helps a lot. Food helps a lot. Our hometown, always traveling to our hometown to the holidays and do the same dumb stuff we used to do when we was in high school, walk around the mall, go hang over here. Like that type of nostalgic stuff, that really helps a lot. Um, making sure that we celebrate each other on our victories, that truly helps a lot. Um, that's how we maintain it. Because we look around and like you said, everybody ain't got that, man. Mm-hmm. Everybody doesn't have that kind of bond with somebody they known since they were adolescents. And and I think it took all of us to separate too. Like Till went to law school at Ole Miss. My man Jay Favors got his PhD in, um, at Ohio State. My man Ant got his PhD at uh, uh, University of Miami. Lonnie went to f- pharmacy school. Juan went to sports agent. And, you and know, but, but, but what you say is, is something, right? Because similar to how I talked about um, – kind of what you're capable of doing when you've had an intimate relationship with your father or your grandfather, uncle. Similarly, you were actually able to create 
day ones with cats who had already been tracked to to do, which right. is different than a lot of us, right? A lot of us is like, yo, my boy, he knew he wasn't graduating from high school when he was in sixth grade, or right. you know right. what I'm saying? So 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 that there there was there was this commonality that you had early on that created uh, that y'all were almost in a petri dish. Man, um, that 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 helped y'all grow and develop in a way that was protected in some ways that most day one crews don't have. Yeah, it's like like I said, man. We just came along at the perfect yeah. time. We just came along, like I said, right after that. A different world is what did it, man. A different world was so such a landmark show. It was so, you know, it was all different personalities. It was it was. Men and women, you got to see Dwayne Wayne grow from this kind of nerdy, yep. obnoxious kid to this man. And that, to the you dude. Know, to the dude. And you got a chance to see that. And that was very important because Dwayne Wayne was dark-skinned. You know what I mean? Like, before that, we, we battling against Christopher Williams and I'll be sure. You know what I mean? Right. Like <laughs> normally, you, normally, Ron would have been the star and about four inches taller. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but Dwayne Wayne came kind of this like figure, this model to be the way he talked to Whitley and get Whitley in check. But he was also smart. But he also wore a Jordans. Like we, that was mm-hmm. the perfect model for the young black kid in the late '80s, early '90s. Well, and there, and there had never been popular content that talked about college at all. Oh, when when you talk kid. about a whole generation of kids that was like they weren't even going to college or thinking right. about college until a different world. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, even some of the stuff it tackled, like the the, the episode when Ron and Dwayne went to jail with the white mm-hmm. boys. Uh, that episode, the episode when when um, Dwayne Wayne's homie came down um, and was trying to get him to go to a, a PWI, and that whole mm-hmm. PWI conversation was going on. Well, even and even this notion of Dwayne Wayne going overseas to work. That all of that and, man. and just that breaking all of these all of these traditional man. barriers about what black people do and don't do. Right. Right. And and it wasn't right. Europe or Africa. It was it was an it was Japan. And his um, major was math and he was the valedictorian. <laughs> that's right. It was it was it was so, you know, pushing the outer limits of what a black kid could be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it could also come from a historically black college. Mm-hmm. So it was just so was, yeah, that, no. was that was that part of was that part of what what was the motivation, man, for you to start teaching? Because listen, like for those of you that are listening now, that you know, you go to college and it's five classes around hip hop, whether it's in social sciences or culture or wherever else. Like this brother right here was teaching hip hop class when it wasn't in vogue. When, when when they had not determined that there was real academic value, um, culturally or otherwise. And so I'm, I'm curious, was, was it your idea to say, wait a minute, how can I take all these parts of who I am and take this to the academy? Or were there folks that said, wait, Pat, listen, you got so much, we need you in the academy. It was kind of both. It, you know, I had a, you know, North Carolina, it's kind of like the, the, the thing they have called Teach for America. When mm-hmm. North Carolina was called the North Carolina Teaching Fellows. And 
is when you go to school, you get your degree, you teach for three years, they pay you a bit, all that kind of stuff. Um, so a lot of friends I went to high school with went to school to become teaching fellows. It was one in particular, um, a guy, he taught at um, he taught at East Chapel Hill High School in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And he had, this is 2004. And now he's, he's calling me saying, man, man, Pat, man, come talk to my students. Come talk to my students. I said, what you want me to talk about? He's saying, man, just talk about hip hop, man. Like just, you know, whatever. So he would come, he would ask me to do that. And so now he introduced me to the class. This is like one, he just did a beat. I'm fresh off the Jay-Z record. This is, mm-hmm. He just did a record from Jay-Z, which uh, mm-hmm. sparked everybody's interest at the time. <laughs> so, you know, in 2003 through 2004, I spent quite some time going around the triangle, and that's Raleigh-Durham Chapel yeah. Hill, going to friends' classrooms, just setting up my turntables and talking about music. And talk about talking about what I do. I even did it for my mom one time when she was in elementary school. I did it for. I was only supposed to do it for her class, but then I ended up doing it for the whole. They just kept bringing kids through. Just kept bringing them through. I spent like all day in the music music uh, room. Just all these kids just come sitting in there style watching me talking. So, long story short, the chancellor at North Carolina Central called went to it. Um, Dr. James Ammons, who who ended up going down to FAMU. Mm-hmm. Um, he caught wind of it and it was like, look, man, like you're an alum here. We're not using you for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. We're not, I think you can make an impact. Would you like to teach whatever you've been teaching? Would you like to make that a curriculum? Would you like to make a syllabus? And I'm like, yeah, like what? And I'm tripping because he said two words that I hadn't heard since I had been in the music industry, salary and benefits. <laughs> I was like, he's like, yeah, you know, you'll get a, you know, you'll get a salary and you know, you, you have to get your benefits and you know, all of that. I'm like, what I get that. I get to go to the dentist for, for like this crazy. So I started teaching in 2006 at North Carolina central, mm-hmm. the history of hip hop. And, um, you know, as the years go on, it, it has evolved. But then I went from there to teach at Duke in 2010 with uh, a good friend of mine, now a great friend of mine, Dr. Mark Anthony Neal, that you probably oh, know. Oh, yeah. Um, and we teach, you know, at the time he wasn't the chair of the department. Now he's the chair of the African-American Studies Department at Duke, which is the number two African-American Studies Department in the country. Um, so I started teaching there. And then in 2012... I ended up becoming a Nastia Jones Fellowship a winner and went to to Harvard to become a Harvard Fellow and to also teach. Mm-hmm. So now, year 2020, I got four classes a week. I teach at Harvard on Mondays. I teach at North Carolina Central on Tuesdays, Duke on Wednesdays, North Carolina Central on Thursdays. And the beautiful thing about there's nothing really beautiful about the pandemic, but the beautiful thing that helps me, because now I ain't got to travel all these places. Mm-hmm. I teach it doing this right here. But before that, I would fly up to pl- fly up to Harvard on Sunday night, teach my class on Monday, back on the plane Monday night, drive to Central Tuesday, teach class, come home, drive to Central Duke, teach class, come home, drive to Central Thursday, teach class, come home. I'm back at Harvard on Sunday. Wow. I did that for a year. Why? Wow. I did that for several years. And I, I did it there. And the year I wasn't teaching at Harvard, I did 
Central Duke and University of Pennsylvania. I would fly to Philly, do the same but, thing. But tell me why. Because cause here's the thing, right? Like, why is that so important to you? Because it's not, it's not just the money, because I'm, I'm clear about that. No, no. Why, why is contextualizing and exploring and, and, and imparting um, so important to you that you would be willing to deal with that kind of grueling engagement to make it happen? Because it is up to us to tell the story the right way. Um, we don't, hip hop doesn't have a PhD, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's not all the way fit into the, as we like to call the canon of academia. It is up to us to decide what the canon is, right? And I talk to all of my brothers and sisters in this industry, and I tell them all the time, like, we have to, we have to control the narrative. We have to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And what I mean, we is the practitioners of the culture, like Rick Rubin should have a school built for him. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like Dr. Dre, well, he already, Dr. Dre getting money at USC, so he already got some over there. Um, but it, it should be, I wanted people to take hip hop as seriously as they would take Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to start that idea now before somebody else starts the idea. Mm -hmm. And now we sitting back mad like we should have did it. No, 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 we had a chance. And not only do I want to do it, I wanted to do it at the highest institutions in the land, right? So I wanted to make sure it was at the HBCU because- Because so often we don't own and control the academic um, exegies of our own stuff. And we, don't, and we don't think, and a lot of us walk around thinking, I'm already black. What I need Lord to learn about it for? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Which is crazy to me. And then they, when they sit in my class, even I taught a summer class one time at NC State, and it was a bunch of, you know, it was for people my age who wanted to learn about the culture. And they thought they came coming in. They know. They know every <laughs> rap song, whatever. My class number two, they were like, I don't know shit. Like, I don't know anything. Like, this is amazing the high stuff I learned. And so it is very important for us to learn about us as much as possible and make that in vogue to learn about us. And so that's why I wanted an HBCU and at my HBCU, because I wanted the kids there to be like, Hey, you got to see one to be one. I was sitting in the same seat yeah. you were 25 years ago. Yeah. But then I did it at Duke and North Carolina and Harvard, because I also wanted to, to be on a, you know, quote unquote, a platform where, the same platform they put Hamilton on. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing, like, you know, to make everybody turn and say, wow, this is an ingenious art form that we need to understand about. Mm -hmm. And 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 you might not like, and I'm speaking to people outside the culture, you might not like Illmatic as far as listening to it, but you have a better understanding why our entire generation does. That was what's important to me. Mm -hmm. so. And what's interesting is there's so many parallels because you might not like kind of blue, right. but you understand why understand. generations that's right. do. That's right. Um, right. Because that's what music does. Right. And, and, and I love to your point because, you know, there are parts of hip hop that are going to be eternal and there are parts of hip hop that are going to be um, 
short-lived as hell. And right. and that's what culture does, but but it's not the individual pieces themselves alone that make that important. It's the ecosystem around the culture and what impacts it and what it impacts. And so I, I've just been so pleased. But but for, for a lot of folks that don't understand kind of uh, hip hop based, born, bred institutional infrastructure, how does Zulu Nation play into that? And to the degree that you can, can you explain to folks kind of that Zulu Nation 2020 is a thing and and what it means to the culture in this moment or what it should mean to the culture in this moment? I, I think it's more of a situation where, you know, Zulu was one of those things that a lot of people heard in songs and used to say it in songs that didn't know what it was, right? Mm-hmm. Like brown, yellow, Puerto Rican, and Haitian, they fight off from the Zulu Nation. Like the the best thing the Zulu Nation did to galvanize us, number one, was was to get the likes of Brand New being involved in De La Soul and the Tribe Called Quest. Right? They used them kind of as the and Ice Cube using kind of as the mouthpieces um, to speak to a young generation. Zulu was you know formed because out of out of the brotherhood of gangs, so to speak. Um, in New York City, um, the black to take a lot of gang members to to galvanize those gang members and turn them into studiers of not only culture but religion, mm-hmm. right? And different kinds of religion because we're talking about the melting pot of New York City. So you're going to deal with different race, colors, and creeds. So what the leaders of Zulu Nation then at the time took was all of these particular brothers. A lot of them were getting out of incarceration. It was coming out of incarceration and ancestors as well and make those into like walking art pieces to be very vocal about the culture you wanted to be a part of which we wouldn't call it a hip-hop in 1973 mm-hmm. it wasn't really called hip-hop in 1979 but you know whatever this is that we have that's a worldwide phenomenon to be the guardian of it mm-hmm. and to use these particular breakdancing um or b-boy b-girl um graffiti um a turntablism of djs and emceeing to use those particular el- elements to galvanize the youth that's the thing about it. it's not the fact that zulu is a hip-hop organization it uses hip-hop to galvanize the youth and that's what it became for me um starting a chapter here because i joined zulu in 2010 mm-hmm. Now my chapter is um, about 45 members strong. So, you know, for us, that's what we wanted to do to kind of keep that particular idea alive to make sure our our mantra here is protect the arts because now arts programming is being taken out of schools. So our biggest thing is protect the arts, protect children and protect the arts and mm-hmm. make sure children stay creative as much as they possibly can because being a creator helps you look at things from a worldview or a, or a universal view. So, um, and not think so. It helps you think outside the box. It helped me think outside the box. So that's what's, that's why Zulu is so important then and now pretty much. But before, before I let you go, brother, um, and, and listen, you, you tell me, um, how much it is you want to talk about or you don't want to talk about, but, I know that um, there's a lot of brothers. We, we talked a little bit earlier about emotion and 
expression and transparency and the fact that even in 2020, there's a lot of us that still don't live in spaces where we got the permission to feel uh, publicly. Um, You have recently dealt with grief uh, in the loss of your brother. And just, just as we have a number of brothers listening that whether it's the insecurity of this moment with COVID, the loss of loved ones, the loss of opportunities, um, you, you and I have in common that I have one brother, uh, mm-hmm. me and him, mm-hmm. and two years, two months difference. And I watch my little ones, man, my, my two-year-old, my three-year-old, and, and they the same way. It's like they're going to be ride or die forever. And, and so, you know, when, when you told me uh, what happened, I, I, I can't imagine, but I can imagine um, and I've lost my dad, but I even feel like that's different. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious if, if you, you're willing to talk just a little bit about how you navigated that and are navigating um, that grief um, and, and what you would say to brothers who have lost something um, that they never could have imagined losing and how they and how they navigate that in a way that that doesn't make them less than. Uh, yeah. but actually makes them stronger. Yeah. Um, you know, grief is a weird thing because it's something that everybody goes through. So sometimes you take it upon yourself to say, nobody wants to hear about my grief because everybody goes through it. Mm. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like, who wants to hear about mine? It's like, you know, and you kind of battle with that. You're already battling with the fact that you just express yourself. Now you're battling with the fact of, how to grieve and how much should you grieve? And if you know, we're we're not. A lot of us really don't care what a lot of people think, but we still, in some ways, do. So we don't want people to say, "Man, he's still crying." You know what I mean? Like, and some people are like this. Some people are like, "Hey, every time I look around, you talk about your brother. You talk about whatever." Like, but the, the thing about him was, I never lost anybody that close. Mm. Like everybody, it been a cousin, auntie uncle you know what i mean but this is somebody i've known for 45 years and i and i didn't know anything else he's 12 years 12 years my senior and i didn't know anything else i didn't know life without him and there's so many factors the first factor was i'm in survival mode because now to my parents i'm the last one Mm. right parents already don't want to bury a child my my parents have buried five children i am number six so now I'm in a fight to make sure I survive. That's number one. Number two, the way I have in my life set up, that me and him were gonna bury our parents. Yeah. Yeah. My parents are 78, 79 years old. He was 56. So in my mind, I'm thinking, Lord willing, we got another 10, 12 years with them. I got another 30 years with him. Now that's been cut short. Now I only have 10 years with them. You see what I mean? Maybe, and, and hopefully it, it extends, but you know, God, things happen. So I'm, I'm dealing with that. That, you know, this was the, I used to be terrified of funeral homes and funerals. And I, I never liked, you know, that I never liked, you know, cat, none of that, man. But with him, you know, it was my, I'm already the person in my family to handle everything anyway, because of who I am and the money I make, right? Mm-hmm. This took on another life because now I'm like, what had happened 
I had to go from straight grief mode to it is up to me to handle everything mode. And now I'm like, mama, don't worry about it. I got this one. And so from everything to, you know, my family helped me pick out what he, you know, what he wore. And, but from the time it was set up, the way the funeral was going to go to the point that I had the funeral home playing SOS band through the speakers, mm. everything I, I orchestrated everything from the pictures, from, from the pictures being put in his obituary to writing his obituary. I started the day he passed on that month, that Friday morning, by the time I got home at 2 PM in Winston-Salem, I was rolling. I was, I was like on a mission to make sure we put my brother away the right way. And that didn't give me a chance to really think about, have a silent time to myself. So, you know, grief is, grief is a monster, man. I just, I was just tell people to, you know, pray as much as you can, make sure you have a solid bound base, make fan, uh, solid, uh, a base of people that you can, you know, that you can lean on. I am, the Lord works in mysterious ways because of COVID. I saw, I started doing fast auntie lounge where I DJ every night mm-hmm. and it is fast auntie lounge. Me DJing every night that helped me through this. You know what I mean? You know, it's because of COVID, I was in town. I wasn't in Japan or yeah. I wasn't in London when I got that call. Yeah. I was an hour and a half away. So, you know, that's the thing that makes you get a solid base of people that are there for you in those particularly dark times. Grief as much as you can. Grief is a process that's going to take a long time. It's going to take the rest of your life. Um, death is so final. You know, there is no, you have to really fathom with the fact that this person is never coming back. And, and that's the, that's the thing that, you know, I've been struggling with, but I also, that it helped me is talking to people that's been through it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's the, it's the worst fraternity to be in without a, without a shadow of a doubt. Mm-hmm. You hear about it. Once you cross those burning sands, man, that ain't a shirt you want to wear. And that's, that's the, that's what it's been for me, but it's and, taught me and, a lot. And then there's simultaneously, and then there's simultaneously the the reality of I don't care what you believe religiously. This is this isn't about dogma, as much as it is about humanity. We're we're more energy and spirit than we are a body, right? And and you start having a relationship with them that evolves. Yes, like the relationship don't stop. Like I. I'm positive I've shown up places and my dad was there before me. Yes. Um, like, like, and, and some stuff has gone down and I'm like, all right, I, 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 I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Um, and that doesn't make it any easier. No. Cause you still want to talk. You still want to hear their voice. Um, dreams, dreams, definitely dreams. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And it's, it's funny what I, what I remember, what I remember most about my dad is um, the feel of his beard against my face when I kiss him goodnight. Right. Um, and those are things that no matter how connected I feel, uh, I'm not going to have again. Yeah. But I rejoice because in missing them, I had them. Right. And and there's a celebration in that because it's 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 cats who ain't missed. <laughs> It's, 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 it's cats who ain't missed. Um, 
And so so to miss is a reflection of memory and fond memory and and blessing. And so I, I appreciate, brother, you sharing that because um, I know it's a daily thing and some days are easier than others. Um, but it's 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 the most human thing uh, we deal with yeah. is, is the is is the mortality of of our human lives. And uh, so I I really appreciate that, brother. Listen, man, you have done a lot and seen a lot and studied a lot. But if you had the ability to invite three men to dinner, Mm. living or dead, Mm. who would you invite? Oh, God. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Wow. Um. Denzel Washington would be number one. Okay. Um, um, Harry Balafonte and Sidney Poitier. Mm. Um, I, I love it. Without a shadow of a doubt, because it, that the depth of that conversation would be so incredible, man. It just seems like, man, sometimes when Denzel talk, man, he's done all the right things to say, bro. Like, when I see him when he do these monologues, and it, it, outside of movies, like, dude, he just talks, he just, he seems like just a wise dude, you know what I mean? Like, somebody very wise, somebody, and somebody who's not afraid to admit they made mistakes. Mm-hmm. I need somebody like that, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Um, and this, I made the mistake, and this is how it made me a better man. And, and, from talking to him, I've never had a chance to talk to him, uh, but I have had a chance to talk to Harry Belafonte on several occasions. Yeah, Mr. And, B is something. Oh man, you just can't. You know what I mean? Like just from what they've seen is just a wealth of knowledge. It's just not going to get anywhere. And they're selfless with it. Yes, like they're selfless with it. I, yeah. I ran into Mr. B at uh, at Yale. Mm-hmm. Um, my my middle son has uh, dyslexia. And so the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity invited me up because mm-hmm. I was trying to, because in all of this parent dyslexia stuff, I ain't seen no black men. Right. And and for those of you that don't know, dyslexia, one in five people have it. It's not one form or another of it, right? It's not socioeconomic, color, nothing. It's a processing issue. And so, but but Mr. B has dyslexia. And so he was at this event. And at the time, Miles was probably nine or ten. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, because of my activism work, Mr. B and I had, had conversations before, but we had never talked about my son having dyslexia. And so he uh, he walked up to me and he hugged me and he was like, move. And he grabbed Miles and pulled him to the side and they went and sat down. And you know, had it not been Mr. B, I'm like, Who, this old dude ain't pulling my son off nowhere. Right, having no conversation. <laughs> and uh, they talked for about ten minutes. And when uh, when they when they stopped, uh, I asked I asked Miles. I said, "What did he say to you?" He said, um, "He said that my dyslexia gives me a superpower, and I just have to figure out what mine is." Wow. See what I'm saying? This is and, what I'm saying. And, and, and we got a picture of it, but it's not until the last three or four years that Miles even understood what happened. 
Like right. you at ten, he don't know who Mr. B is. He don't know his history and no. But but when he first saw his doc, and he was like, Dad, that's the superpower dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they yeah. they they those cats, man, they're not afraid of young talent. They're not afraid of young gangster. In fact, they feed off of it. Right. And uh and that's that's the blessing of them. Um I gotta I gotta ask you this, bruh. This is the last one. In 2020, mm -hmm. without making any comparisons to any players from North Carolina who played in Chicago, mm -hmm. how do you now feel about LeBron James? He's number he's number three on my list. After? I already know number one, because listen, for, for those of y'all that don't know, you just don't want to have a conversation about Michael Jordan with this brother. You just don't don't mention it, don't bring it up, just keep it moving. Yeah, leave it alone. But, but you know, I, did I think, you know, there's something to be said about Mount Rushmore, you know what I mean? There's yeah. something to be said about that. And he's definitely on that. And there's some people, when you have the conversation about the greatest of all time or the greats of all time, like, you know, Mount Rushmore, it's kind of like, it, it's actually trying to break it down to people. We watch the Olympics and, and when we watch the Olympics, you, you know, you watch the, the hundred yard dash and, you know, Usain Bolt will come in first, but then there's a guy might come in seventh. They'd be like, ah, oh, you came in seventh. No, no, no. You just got to understand. There's only six people in the world that's faster than this dude. You know what I mean? Like, don't you understand this? <laughs> like, there's only six human beings on the planet Earth that can run faster than me. The remaining billions and billions of people cannot. And that's and that's the thing about it. So with LeBron, the, you know, the Ugobs and Ugobs, the players that have played this game, he is on Mount Rushmore. And it's, it's arguably only one or two players in the history of the game that is considered better than he is. You know what I mean? I like how Mike Rappaport um, put it um, recently. Mm -hmm. He said that um, Mike is the greatest player. LeBron has had the best career. And and I, and, you know, and, and career meaning to be in year 17, yeah. to being physically fit the way he is, that's unheard of and unseen because of what amount of work he's put into his body. Yep. But at the same time, nobody's going to talk me out of six and oh, three peating twice. Nobody's going to talk. Me oh, about listen, if, if, if anything, and I already know, I, 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 I don't even want to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. If anything, the, the bigger comparison to me is Mike and Kareem. Just, just based on numbers. But but the but the reality is nobody has ever changed basketball the way Michael Jordan changed basketball. No, not at all. The culture, everything. Culture. But I don't think anybody has inspired what a player could be in their whole life the way LeBron, LeBron. has. Oh, like what he's done off the basketball court, the way he has taken on his own destiny and saying, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go here, yep. I'm going to go here. I'm going to be the master of my fate. Yep. You know what I mean? I'm going to do that. And I'm going to, and I'm going to also, he's also giving cast a blueprint. That, okay. You got your homeboys. This is what you do with That's your it. This is what you do. That's and that it. hasn't been done before, you know, in the game on the, in the, everybody can see it. And I think it's, you know, from what Maverick Carter is doing, 
Rich Paul, oh, you man, know, bro. you know what I'm saying? Like he, that that's that's top notch. Yep. Nobody can beat that. And we've never seen that before. We've seen no. dudes bring their crew, but no, not that. but never like that. Not a basketball player where one of his homeboys uh, Maverick Carter is doing the commencement speech at USC. We haven't right. seen that. And, and 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 frankly, consulting the biggest corporations in the world Absolutely. on how to market. And Absolutely. Rich Paul now super super uh, agent um, in sports. I mean, it's just it it is it's been incredible to watch, man. And um, and I and, and and I think what it has done for me as somebody from Cleveland is give me a greater appreciation, I think, to your point, to lift Rushmore, because sometimes comparisons just don't make sense. No, I don't. And and if we can just acknowledge true greatness, exactly we would be doing ourselves a better service than we are constantly trying to make uh inappropriate comparisons. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Brother, listen, man. I I so appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, man. Um, really, really appreciate who you've been to me, uh, the brotherhood, the the opportunity, um, and just who you are to the culture, man. So, thank you so much, brother. Thank you, man. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for the time and 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 you know you're one of the, our leaders in this, man. And I appreciate you, one hundred percent. Absolutely, my man. All right, brother. I'll talk to you soon. All right, peace. Peace. Y'all listen. Um, I don't even know what to say from there. Uh, I, I appreciate Patrick Ninth Wonder so much for coming through. Um, there is something to be said for uh, greatness and mastery that is rooted in humanity and humility. And I think that for all that, we didn't even talk about all of the records that he's produced and the artists that he's worked with. Because when all is said and done, I actually think that who he is as a human um, just totally overshadows even the greatness that he has um, reflected in the music that he's produced and the artists that he has worked with. And that, as we talk about LeBron, is so much of, of what I think we all should uh, aspire to. It is not to just be the best in our profession, uh, but be less than as a human. And if we could commit to mastering not only our gift, but mastering our humanity, damn, what would the world look like right now? Um, so I'm out of here. Uh, appreciate all of you for being a part of the Men Thrive family. Uh, thank you to Mo. Thank you to Madison. Thank you to the entire Men Thrive team. Uh, we are going to come back next week, hopefully with more uh, brothers that want to have a conversation. And I'm telling y'all, at some point, we're going to have a sister on this show. I'm not sure yet. Uh, we talking about it. I'd actually be open to hearing from y'all. Who is the sister that you would like to see first on Men Thrive? Or are you like, hell no, this is my spot. Don't do that, Jeff. I'm going to hate you for it. <laughs> Let me know what y'all think. Hit us. Uh, you can go to menthrive.com or go to men underscore thrive on IG uh, and find us there. Let me know what you think. But if nothing else, we'll see you next week. Peace. Yo, thanks for listening to Men Thrive. Did you like us? 
If you like us, visit your go-to podcast provider and check out other episodes. You can also go deeper by joining our community at menthrive.com. 